at length is supported by the University of Washington Alumni Association. There's a lot of chocolate cities around. We've got Newark, we've got Gary. Somebody told me we got L.A. And we're working on Atlanta. I'm Steve Scher. The cities we live in reveal a lot more about our politics, our history, and our culture than maybe we first understand. And not just the cities, also the amusement parks and our movies. Eric Avila is a professor of history at UCLA. He examines the built environment for clues to American values, prejudice, racial discrimination. His work takes him from Coney Island to the freeway boom of the 60s and on to Disneyland. Avila is in Seattle for a talk at UW titled Chocolate Cities and Vanilla Suburbs, Race, Space, and American Culture After World War II. That's January 27th, 6.30 at Kane Hall. He took the title of the lecture from a George Clinton song, Chocolate City. Moving in around ya. God bless CC and his vanilla suburbs. Um, the significance of the song, I can't remember the exact year that it came out, but I want to say like mid 70s. Early to mid seventies, I think. Yeah, um, and it signals a growing black awareness of uh, a concentration of uh, black people in the context of inner cities, and I think it also signals awareness of growing political power among African Americans in cities. Um, and that that possibly posed a threat to kind of suburban white America. Um, so that song, I think, is part of a larger process of urbanizing Black identity, Black politics, that you see throughout the second half of the 20th century. You know, if I may, you're looking at uh, Black identity, Black politics, minority identity in America. Are you looking at Latino identity? As, as part of that? Well, absolutely. I mean, my, my first book is on Los Angeles, and you can't talk about L.A. without talking about Mexican-Americans and other Latino groups as well. So I'm, I'm very interested in racial identity and how racial identities have changed over time. And by racial identity, I don't just mean Black identity and Latino identity, but also white identity as well. Um, which needs to be looked at as a a racial process that has a beginning, a middle, and hopefully an end as well. Why do you say hopefully an end? Well, because if you think about the construction of white identity in American history, you know, European immigrants didn't call themselves white before they came to the United States. Um, it was only in the process of uh, encountering non-white peoples, that they began to think of themselves as white. And that process of thinking of oneself as white um, has been one of the, the major race problems of, of American history. You know, it's interesting you were talking about uh, cities. You're talking about Chicago. I grew up in Highland Park, Illinois. Okay. And uh, a North Shore suburb. And we knew as kids uh, that... 
Winnetka was a particular kind of Christian. Wilmette was slightly different. Glencoe was another kind of Christian. Glenview was another. Highland Park was Jewish. Highwood was Italian. Deerfield was more wasp. Lake Forest was more wasp. I mean, we had that already uh, checkerboarded America right. in, our, in our identity. And that's, right. that's essentially what you were also talking about, yes? Yeah, it is. And I think one of the things that, that drives my research um, program is the way that we come to, uh, we come to associate certain spaces and urban spaces in particular with, with racial identities, or we invest racial meaning into particular spaces within a city. Um, and we use a whole vocabulary of descriptions to talk about black neighborhoods versus white neighborhoods or Latino neighborhoods or gay neighborhoods or immigrant neighborhoods. Um, and I think that's true of every American city. You know, the, the, the natives know who lives where, and that becomes a kind of racial geography that's mapped onto the urban landscape. When we go into a city and somebody tells us, "Oh, you don't want to go into that neighborhood. That's not a good neighborhood." Those that's are a, all. Those are all codes. That's a code, exactly. What exactly. Are, What are some examples? Well, since you looked a lot at LA, what are some examples from Los Angeles that uh, where the public space had been has been racialized? Um, well, that's a, that's an interesting question because that very issue is is what drove a lot of planning policy in the middle of the 20th century. So, you know, if you look at planning documents at either the the municipal level or even the federal level, um, they are uh, emphatic in the way that they talk about certain racial groups who live in East Los Angeles, for example, or uh, in downtown Los Angeles, in the famous neighborhood of Bunker Hill. Um, you know, by the 1930s and 1940s, these were neighborhoods that were known as immigrant, racially diverse, working class neighborhoods, um, often kind of a hotbed of, of union activity. Um, and all of that was kind of codified in official planning discourse as subversive um, in one way or another. And that's what became the basis for redevelopment plans of the 1940s and 1950s or highway construction schemes of the 1950s and 1960s. So that very process of, of uh, uh, mapping the city in these kind of cognitive terms or, or according to racial identity became the foundation for actual uh, planning practice during the mid to late 20th century. Yeah, when you talk about freeway construction, and that's the, that's the big focus of your, of your newest book, you are talking about actual uh, thinking that, went in, that was involved in how a freeway was laid out across Los Angeles, across Chicago, across many other American cities? Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, planners looked closely at who lived where, um, and they had to make decisions about what neighborhoods were expendable and what neighborhoods were not expendable, um, what neighborhoods would be difficult to build a highway through and what neighborhoods would be easier to build a highway through. 
And more often than not, the the issue of race was central uh, to that process of, of making those decisions, either in very overt and direct ways in some cities or um, in, in more kind of implicit ways. Like what? What were the implicit ways? Well, um, you know, using uh, federal uh, redlining maps in the 1930s as a way of assessing the property value. Um, you know, in theory, those were, were supposed to be empirical studies produced by the federal government in the 1930s. But if you look closely at those so-called empirical studies, they're loaded with all kinds of racial assumptions, um, racial meanings um, about uh, people of color being associated with subversive groups in American society. Um, and that work that was done in the 1930s is what eventually uh, played a role in highway construction in subsequent decades. Did they pull out that more uh, racialized language when they started building the highways in the 60s and 70s? Or not was over- there? Not overtly, no. I think by then uh, it became much more of a kind of tacit uh, set of assumptions that were shared among a planning profession that was overwhelmingly white, male, professional, middle class. I mean, many communities who were protesting freeways in the 60s and 70s would make that argument. You're putting this freeway through here because you, you, you think we're a blighted community. And, of course, the response was always, no, no, this is the best route, et cetera, et cetera. But you found documents that say, no, they were they were making racialized judgments. Yeah, I mean, if, if, if you look at, you know, you can find a, a history there. You can find a history of... Um, racial meetings embedded in planning documents and municipal debates from the 1920s all the way through the 1950s and 1960s. Um, It's not that highway planners said, you know, oh, the black people live here. This is where we're going to build the highway. I mean, that was true in in some cities, such as in the American South. And that's something that I I document in my book. Um, But in Los Angeles and, and in other cities, it wasn't quite that overt. But if you look at, you know, where highways were built, they still conform to a racial geography um, that was already established by federal policy as far back as the 1930s. And this is policy that's embedded in culture, that's embedded in racism. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the, the idea was that these were empirical scientific studies by qualified experts um, who were trained with the rigor and the discipline to objectively um, assess property values in cities. But if you look at the documents that they produced, um, they're loaded with all sorts of racial assumptions and racial meanings, which you know today we know is, is nonsense. Um, but back then, uh, people really believed that you know, racial difference was something scientific, um, something innate and something biological. And something in some cities that was embedded in law or embedded in covenants of developments. All of the above. You know, when you look at, uh, when you're looking at this through the, through the modern lens, when you're looking back, one thing I was struck by was uh, you focused also on freeway revolts and where Chicanas uh, in L.A., for example, so women, uh, artists, went into these spaces that had been taken over and asserted themselves with art. Yes. It's remarkable. Yes. Yes. 
And that's part of the freeway revolt story that we don't know so well. Um, you know, I work in the field of urban history and, and I'm, you know, a, a 20th century urban historian. And within that field, you know, anybody who works in that field, we know what the freeway revolt was. Um, it was a term that was used to describe a backlash from neighborhoods and communities who organized coalitions to block official plans for highway construction. And we know that there were many successes in that story. New Orleans, Lower Manhattan, um, Beverly Hills, Princeton. We Boston, had one in Seattle. Boston, Seattle. Yes, absolutely. And that's in, that's in my book as well. Um, but my argument in that book is that that's only part of the story. Uh, there's a much more pervasive revolt that lingers to the present day that reflects an ongoing uh, legacy of resentment against the destructive work of highway construction. And a lot of that resentment has been expressed not so much through, you know, ballots and organized visible forms of political protest, but more through um, the immediate and available resources of culture, of, of writing, of painting, of creating art or poetry, um, or murals uh, from communities that were uh, heavily impacted by highway construction. And a lot of that work actually involved uh, an intervention into the space of the freeway itself, particularly where freeways um, you know, bulldozed their way through minority neighborhoods in the, in the 1950s and 1960s. And, and that to me is an attempt not only to express a community's protest, against what freeways did to their neighborhood, um, but also an effort to, to make their neighborhoods more livable, more tolerable, um, in spite of the freeway's presence. Where did that succeed? Um, well, you know, um, for me, one of the big inspirations of writing this book was East Los Angeles. And if you look at the art of East LA, particularly during the heyday of the Chicano movement in the 1970s, um, you'll find multiple references to freeways um, in, in all sorts of, of ways. Some of them are benign, um, what we might just call aesthetic or um, apolitical, but I think the vast majority of them are uh, uh, present a critique of freeways and what they did to East Los Angeles. So that was kind of the initial inspiration for that book, but then I discovered that it wasn't just L.A., um, it was Treme in New Orleans, it was Roxbury in Boston, um, it was West Oakland in the Bay Area. Um, it was St. Paul, Minnesota, or Miami, uh, Florida. Um, all kinds of neighborhoods across the lines of race and geography um, uh, produced this kind of cultural work to document the history of highway construction and what it did to uh, minority communities during the post-war period. Eric Avila is a, did I say that right? Say Avila. That? Avila, yeah. Eric Avila is professor of history, Chicano studies, urban planning at UCLA. His uh, newest book, The Folklore of the Freeway Race and Revolt in the Modernist City. So where does the Seattle uh, freeway revolt uh, take take position in those other revolts? Because that revolt was uh, through a, well, the freeway was going to go in part through a middle-class neighborhood and through a, a lower-class neighborhood. Uh, so what, what impact did it, did it have? 
Um, well, in the book, I, I tell the story of Nancy Rising, um, who was a uh, suburban mother and housewife um, from the community of Bellevue. And she was uh, very involved with the PTA of her children's school. And through her work on the PTA, um, she became involved in a campaign to stop the construction of Interstate 5 through suburban Seattle. Um, and she emerged as kind of the um, leader of this, uh, of, of Seattle's version of the freeway revolt. And uh, she successfully rallied um, people in her neighborhood and adjacent communities to block the construction of the freeway in this one path that, that would have impacted her, her children's school. So I look at Nancy Rising as an example of, number one, the prominent role of women um, in organizing community opposition to highway construction. But when you compare Nancy Rising's story to the story of uh, Chicana artists in East LA, for example, who did not succeed in blocking the freeway in their community, um, you have to look at Rising in the context of a certain set of racial and class privileges that enabled success in a suburban uh, a context, um, one that was not afforded to uh, inner city communities of color. Can I share an interesting anecdote and get your reaction? Sure. I lived in the part of Seattle that was so in the path of the freeway that was going to be built. And it was very nice homes adjacent to the Arboretum, very nice neighborhood. Um, the city and the state, rather, ended up owning about uh, 60 homes uh, along one street. And when that freeway was stopped, those homes were sold below market to a, to a, a multiracial audience. What do I want to say? Audience. Clientele. Mm -hmm. So that when I moved into that neighborhood in a rental, it was, the, uh, it was a mixed street, mostly black, mm -hmm. some white, mm -hmm. uh, for about six blocks. And then it sort of wound its way through a, through the, a, a neighborhood that was had not been changed, and then into the Central District, which is uh, was the predominantly African-American neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And um, over the years, the, the African-American families moved out, mm -hmm. selling their homes because they were nice homes. They could get good money for them. And uh, moving to the suburbs, to Renton, and uh, in particular in Kent. Mm -hmm. And I always thought that was an interesting... Uh, well, reversal of, of, of white flight, and I guess a precursor to what we're seeing now in cities around the country. Right, right. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that is a pattern that has become more apparent in American cities towards the very end of the 20th century and into the 21st century. Um, but in, in, in the time period that I call the age of the freeway, um, 19, late 1940s to late 1960s, um, the dominant pattern was one of white flight and um, the racialization of, of the inner city, the concentration of black and Latino poverty within the, con the, the, the precincts of an aging, decrepit, deteriorating inner city. Um, so, you know, as a historian, I'm, I'm, I'm focused on that moment 
though I am aware that that you know in subsequent decades and later on patterns have reversed, patterns have changed, not necessarily in a way that that um, you know represents any form of, of equality, spatial equality or uh, socioeconomic mobility, but to some degree, yes, things are different now. Yeah. Well, they they're flipping, right? I mean, when 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 people ask you about uh, what the space is in St. Louis compared to Ferguson, for example, uh, um, is there is there in the history of Ferguson a parallel to the history of what you're writing about in your books? You know, I I don't know the history of Ferguson so well, um, but I wouldn't be surprised if there were parallels there from what I what limited information i have on that particular neighborhood it's, it's interesting to see cities that have well another another one is our own bellevue a big city of bellevue that you talked about was was is no longer a, it is still a majority white city but 40 percent is minority mm-hmm. uh, from all over the world yes right and, and of course that's a that's a different um that's a different way of that's a different evolution of the cities perhaps than or the suburbs rather than we had foreseen in the sixties. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the paradigm of, of white flight, white flight is a historical term that to me connotes a distinct moment in time that is over. So here in Los Angeles, you know, the San Fernando Valley was, was kind of the, um, the, the ground zero of white flight in the 1950s and 1960s. Um, and in that moment, the San Fernando Valley represented um, this kind of white suburban middle class ideal of of the American way of life. Now, the San Fernando Valley is very different. I mean, it's it's a polyglot, uh, highly heterogeneous, diverse concentration of immigrants, of African Americans, um, of Mexican Americans, um, Armenians. Chinese, Korean. I mean, it's a radically diverse neighborhood, but this is where white flight was happening in the 50s and 60s. But but now um, the story is very different. You know, when you uh, were looking at this in your previous book and, and to an extent in this book, you, you looked at very deliberate uh, cultural trends that emerged or even cultural uh, uh, powers that emerged. And one of them was Disney. And, mm-hmm. and Walt Disney, what did Walt Disney specifically do and what did he represent in terms of the shift in culture in Southern California and, and by, by that, all of America? Yeah, well, Walt Disney, I think, was a man of his time. I mean, I think he had a very clear understanding of um, a certain framework of American identity in the middle of the 20th century. It, it, it was one that was rooted in this idea of, of a kind of white suburban middle-class nuclear family um, organized around, uh, you know, patriarchal mode of, of, of family life. Um, I think Disney was very much in tune with that suburban ideal that dominated American culture um, in the mid 20th century. And I think Disneyland, I think of Disneyland as kind of a, a um, kind of like a, a, a mapping of a kind of white suburban conservative unconscious, if you will. 
Um, you know, if you think about the landscape of Disneyland, if you think about the design of Disneyland, it, it conforms in so many ways to um, the emergence of a white suburban conservative politics that actually, not surprisingly, came out of Orange County through people like Barry Goldwater, Ronald Reagan, and Richard Nixon in the 1950s and 60s. Um, I see Walt Disney as, as sharing a lot of the political values and, and mindset of, of those uh, figures who emerged during the Cold War to kind of spearhead what, what we now know as the new right. Will you even uh, connect Walt Disney with Ronald Reagan through the opening of a, a Disneyland uh, yes. event in 55? Right. Yes, those connections were already there. I just discovered them and kind of brought them to light in this chapter on Disneyland. Does it, uh, and then further, uh, Dodger Stadium, another example of, uh, in your in your thinking of the, the imposition of the suburban culture and what it meant for cities into Los Angeles. Yeah, yeah. No, I think of Dodger Stadium. If you look at kind of the rhetoric surrounding um, the, the plan to build Dodger Stadium, a lot of it was about saving the inner city. Um, and by that, uh, what was meant was saving the inner city from white flight in order to anchor um, a white suburban middle class who was increasingly leaving the city for the suburbs to anchor that population within the center city by building these very kind of safe, homogenous, kind of predictable cultural experiences, such as the very modern baseball stadium that Walter O'Malley built um, with government subsidies um, in the 1950s and 1960s. Um, so, so Dodger Stadium was kind of part of that effort, and I call it suburbanizing the city center to eradicate the old noir city, as I, I put it in the book, um, to build this you know, um, very insulated, safe, uh, contained, regimented space surrounded by this vast parking lot um, you know, that was reflective of the new suburban life, way of life that was kind of overtaking American cities. And L.A. was was kind of a pioneer of that new experience of suburban life. But that is linked. I mean, there have been many critis criticisms, right, of the rise of the automobile. But you are linking that directly to a racialized perception of America, that, that race played a role in that. Oh, I think so. I think absolutely. I mean, number one, just through highway construction and its impact um, upon minority communities and uh, eliminating or eradicating minority communities in order to build this, you know, ultra modern high speed network of freeways. But also, um, to me, the embrace of the automobile and the freeway in the second half of the 20th century was part of a, a larger cultural rejection of traditional patterns of urban life that sanctioned um, the kind of promiscuous intermingling of diverse classes and races and the sexes within the uh, spatial context of modern cities, whether it was, you know, streetcars or subways or bustling sidewalks or streets. Um, uh, the old city of the late 19th and early 20th century sanctioned that kind of intermixing. And that bothered a lot of people, especially policymakers during the progressive era, 
who wanted to find ways to reinstate traditional forms of, of separation and segregation and to exert a new form of discipline over the unruly crowds of the city. So that by the time that you get to the, 20, the mid-20th century, with the age of the automobile and the age of the freeway, and you see the rise of the shopping mall, you see the rise of the suburban tract housing development, you see the introduction of television, um, you see the rise of the theme park and the freeway. All of these cultural experiences um, were based on a, a, a sharp rejection of that traditional mode of urban life in which uh, people of diverse classes and ethnic groups and languages and religions and sexes all intermingled together in the spaces of the old city. Well, what happened? I mean, what happened to promote that? I mean, you're talking about institutionalized bigotry and racism against against African-Americans, against Latinos to a lesser extent, and Asians? Well, race was a big part of it, especially if you think about the great migration of African-Americans to American cities in the middle of the 20th century, particularly in the early 1940s. I mean, World War II um, um, sparked this massive uh, uh, transfer of populations from the country to the city or from the South to the north or to the Midwest or to the far west. Um, and so during the 1940s, African-Americans left the South in what's called the second great migration um, and, and urbanized and they moved to the cities where at the time there were job opportunities um, in the industrial um, uh, plants of, of military production, shipyards and aircraft and, 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 and whatnot. Um, and so that process, uh, as soon as African-Americans were thrown into the urban mix in the 1940s, that is kind of what sparked white flight. Um, in addition to technological innovations like, like the automobile and the freeway and television, um, you know, everything kind of, kind of converged in this one moment to spur this new suburban way of life that I argue was predicated on a... On a reinvigorated sense of racial difference. Hmm. You know, my uh, aunt and uncle lived in the south side of Chicago, and they were in a neighborhood that uh, was redlined and blockbusted quickly, quickly changed from a white neighborhood to an all-black neighborhood. They refused right. to move right. because they were radicals of the 30s and they subscribed to Ramparts magazine, and that was just not something they were going to be a part of. Right. Um, but boy, their friends kept saying, it's time to move. It's time to move. Your neighborhood is dangerous now. Right. And that was the equivalence that you were saying. That was the racism that you were, that you were seeing, that yeah. darker meant danger. Yeah, yeah. We're not talking, you know, white hoods and pitchforks and torches here. It's not, it's not that kind of racism. Um, it's a different kind of racism. It's, it's more tacit. Um, it, it, uh, was grounded in uh, public policies like redlining, uh, in private policies like blockbusting and homeowners associations. Um, it was grounded in, in government programs like urban renewal and slum clearance and public housing. Um, and it had a cultural component as well. And that's what I argue in, in my first book, Popular Culture in the Age of White Flight. Can I, can we touch on that for a moment? Because because sure. uh, one of the things you talk well among the things you talk about 
are film noir, films that I have enjoyed for many years, uh, Double Indemnity, Sunset Boulevard. Yeah. I always saw those mostly as the, the, uh, the anti-hero not fitting into the world around him, not quite as heroic as he was supposed to be, but psychologically oppressed by the, the demands of the culture. Yeah, uh, but but you are also writing that you can you if we watch that and look for the codes and the images, the the darkened city is about racial fear. Yeah, well, film noir literally translates to black city, and as a historian, you know, I had to read those films through their historical context. So I would ask, you know, what was going on in American society that might help us understand the meaning of film noir. Um, and so when you think about, you know, black migration to the cities in the early 1940s, the beginnings of white flight in the mid to late 1940s, um, race riots in the cities between 1941 and 1944 throughout the nation, um, you know, film noir debuted during a heightened moment of racial tension in American society and it, 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 it coincided almost perfectly um, with the concentration of racial poverty in the context of the inner city. And that's when cities became dangerous, right? That's when, you know, poverty um, became the basis for rising levels of crime uh, in the city, uh, uh, municipal neglect of urban infrastructure, um, you know, people and jobs and resources began fleeing the city. And, and I argue that film noir um, was a kind of a, a, a confirmation of white flight. And it was also kind of an exhortation to get out of the city, leave, move. It's dangerous. It's deteriorating. Um, and, and go to the you know, more moral alternative of the white suburbs. That just makes me so sad because I watched film noir as this uh, revolt against the, uh, the man. And so that's... did I. So did I. And, and you know, I, I didn't write about film noir if I didn't love it. And, you know, I fell in love with it first, you know, a long time ago when I was in college. And, you know, the more I watched these films and the more I studied American history, I began to see these connections that, that needed to be made. Um, and so I, I see film noir as a suburban form of popular culture. Um, it, it rejects traditional patterns of urban life. And I see it very compatible with a space like Disneyland, um, which is kind of the antidote to the noir city. So what, what do I do with the thinking about that, that the connection between poverty neglect of the cities and race because many people who fled say they fled because the schools were bad the housing stock was crumbling and they could get these new great houses in the suburb uh for for pennies right i don't blame them one bit uh the only problem was is that most people failed to realize that that was a racial privilege that was not afforded to people of color during the post-world war ii period Right, because I imagine you live in a nice house that you that is where your kids can go to a good school. I mean, that those that, those are all our goals. Yes. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, but 
you know, those goals are not equally attainable by diverse social groups. And that remains true today. President Obama talked about that in the State of the Union. Absolutely. And I was talking to somebody afterwards and he said, look, all Obama wants to do is uh, is feel bad for people who have to work so hard that they can't buy a new car and can't get uh, a trip to Hawaii. That his interpretation of, for example, free community college was he just wants to give a handout to people who don't want to struggle. And right. there's, there is in that statement um, links back to Ronald Reagan's welfare queen statements. Right, right. No, absolutely. It's just a different spin, right? But the notion is who's afforded the opportunity. That's right. what many people are missing. Right, right. That's what white privilege means. Right, exactly. So what do I do with that information now? You're a historian, uh, I know, so you get to look back. But uh... <laughs> Well, I, you know, I think that uh, people need to know this. I, I, I think people... Um, tend to take for granted um, many aspects of American life without realizing that they are a form of privilege. Could be a form of male privilege, uh, could be a form of racial privilege, could be a form of other kinds of privilege. Um, but inequality continues to play out in our society along many different lines, including, if not especially, uh, along racial lines. Can I just end with something you, you wrote in, in your first book that I'm struck by, and you also talk about it in your second book, which and you mentioned it, uh, public space. Yeah. And how public space is reflected in that. And one of the first things you talked about was how, for example, Walt Disney looked at what was happening on Coney Island and yeah. said, oh, we're not going to be like that, because the people who were coming to Coney Island uh, in, the, in the 40s were not the right kind of people, correct? That's right. how, I mean, that's how it was portrayed. Right. Right. No, Disney was disgusted by Coney Island. Um, he thought it was it was tawdry. It was dangerous. Um, he was disgusted by New York City, um, which he also thought of as tawdry and dangerous. And and Southern California, he saw as a more kind of healthful, uh, more moral alternative to the decadent and degraded cities of the East Coast. New York being the capital of that older way of life. So, so uh, Los Angeles has communities of privilege along the shoreline. I think it's fair to say. Oh yeah, uh, and and so there's the difference between Venice and uh, uh, Redondo Beach. Yeah, I that's one. How did how did the I mean, how were those shaped to reflect inclusion and exclusion? You don't well, have to use those examples. But. By and large, in Southern California, the beach has been a zone of racial conflict and exclusion. Um, so African-Americans never really enjoyed access to the beach in the way that white Americans did throughout the 20th century. And that was as true for Venice as it was for Redondo Beach. So, you know, Santa Monica had um, racially segregated bathing facilities in the 1920s, for example. Um, Manhattan Beach was an outpost of the Ku Klux Klan um, in the 1920s and 1930s. Um, so the beach in general, um, because I think it is a coveted site in, 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 in Southern California, um, has been a site of, of, of racial conflict and, and exclusion. Hmm. Eric Avila, when you look at the landscape, you see the, the history of the country, don't you? 
Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think that, you know, the built environment and, and the physical geography of cities is one of the best ways of understanding American history. Yeah, yeah. And as we see things turning back, when we see white um, uh, colonization of formerly colored cities, chocolate cities, mm -hmm. we are seeing the, the ebb and flow of that process? Or is yep. that a surprise? No, I don't think it's a surprise necessarily. Um, but I think that the suburban way of life has exhausted itself um, in an environmental sense and in a cultural sense. And I think people are now coming back to the city. I mean, Seattle's a great example of this. Yeah, but people um, are going to get people are going to get pushed out then. The other the people who aren't powerful, who aren't who aren't rich. Yes, absolutely. Unless it, unless policies are different. It is a cycle that I think is endemic to um, capitalist societies. Absolutely. Eric Avila, thank you for talking to me. Thanks a lot, Steve. I appreciate it. Historian Eric Avila is in Seattle for a talk at UW titled Chocolate Cities and Vanilla Suburbs, Race, Space, and American Culture After World War II. It's January 27th, 6.30 at Kane Hall, Room 120. Avila is author of Popular Culture in the Age of White Flight, Fear and Fantasy in Suburban Los Angeles. His latest book is The Folklore of the Freeway, Race and Revolt in the Modernist City. At length, it's supported by the University of Washington Alumni Association. I'm Steve Scher. Thanks for listening. Find more interviews with guest lecturers from the UW Alumni Association and the Graduate School at the website uwalum slash at length. Right on, Chocolate City. Yeah. Get deep.